Thank you, Brian, for that prayer. Brian is doing triple duty for us today in the praise team and praying for us and leading our congregational meeting. So thank you, Brian, for all your faithful work. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, just been a joy to journey through this letter together with you, and thank you for your feedback and encouragement and how rallying around the gospel is meaningful to us individually, but also uh, our church at Westminster. If you're there, please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 14. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness... Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated, and let's go to the Lord in prayer. And Father, we ask for help by your Holy Spirit to illuminate this text for us, so that we could see how profitable truly it is for our daily living, for the strengthening of our faith and for the edification of the body of Christ. Lord, would you be glorified as these words are proclaimed to our hearts. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, these days, I'm not sure if you've dabbled in this, looking up your genealogy and ancestry is all the rage. Companies such as 23andMe and Ancestry.com are two of the more popular sites out there, and it's a, it's a booming industry. Well, my friend even went to Ireland last year with his family because he traced all his roots all the way back to this one small community somewhere in Ireland, and he got to connect with distant relatives that he had never met or probably never even knew about before. I have another friend who is a veterinarian, and they're doing these tests even on pets. Uh, Some people want to see if they spent thousands of dollars correctly on advertised pure breeds, only to be disappointed after they get the results. But I I guess for me, I don't think think I'll ever do this, and I don't think, quite frankly, it's going to be that much fun for me. I'm a huge Anglophile. I love all things British. Shout out to Downton Abbey. But I'm not going to go through the test and suddenly hear the part of my ancestry, Robin, he came from England. I'm not going to hear that. They're probably going to say, Robin, we have big news for you. And I'll open up that email. Your ancestry 
is all Korean. And I'll say, really? That was money well spent. But all that to say, people are getting more and more obsessed with tracing out to the last detail their heritage as far as they can. Well, friends, even more obsessed with lineage and ancestry and connected to the right family were the so-called Judaizers from Jerusalem. Everything for them went back to the Mosaic law, but even before that, the prized possession, everything went back to Abraham for them. And they wanted everything to stay the same, customarily and ceremonially, even after Christ's death and resurrection. They said, sure, you could believe in Jesus, and that's great and all, but you need to become Jewish if you really want to get into the family of God. And if you want to somehow truly be connected to the true line from Abraham, well, you have to at least, at the bare minimum, Christian, have to be circumcised. And at most, absorb all of our traditions and law as yours. And if you're a Jewish Christian, well, you better keep up with the law as you did before. This is the larger context, right, of the last month in Galatians. And Paul sees this as the number one threat to to the true and pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And so today we're back in chapter 3, and that phrase, by faith alone, has been that overall topic and theme for the last two weeks in this letter. Paul said, by faith alone we are justified. We saw that beginning in chapter 2. By faith alone, we saw last week, we are granted the Holy Spirit. The argument Paul made last week that we didn't receive the Spirit because of works or adhering to the law. We received the Spirit of Christ at our justification. And that the Holy Spirit also brings about our sanctification also through faith. And then finally, Paul argues the Spirit has done marvelous things amongst us before any of this talk of going back to the law and winding back that clock to the old ways. These are Paul's arguments. And so there is this terrible battle going on amongst the multitude of Galatian churches. A disease is spreading like a contagious virus amongst all these believers because, again, some false teachers coming up from Jerusalem to these churches are trying to sway people away from a gospel that says you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And apart from any work, you can contribute. Friends, we see the same frustration over all the centuries since Christ. And even the Roman Catholic Church during the Reformation where the Catholic Catholic bishops would preach Christ, they would preach faith, they would preach about grace, but they hated the term alone. And they got so frustrated with the Calvinists and other reformers that were championing the five solas or the five alones. The same temptation rears its ugly head today. In today's current climate, all across the world, there's always a Christ plus something else sentiment around every corner. Some of you have been texting me or emailing me about your experiences with this. Perhaps a family member or a church where you grew up or a religious coworker that said, that's great, that's great, I believe in Jesus too. But did you know that you also need A, B, and C to actually come in 
and to stay in to the family of God. And I think this happens because of our sin. The most natural, innate tendency is to attempt to add on to the gospel as if we knew how to make the gospel better. And let us not forget that Paul is at this elevated emotional state. He's seriously upset at this point in the letter. Remember in verse 1 of chapter 3, he calls them foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? So I don't want that context to escape us now that we're in the next part of the passage because we're picking up the text from that same thought or mid-thought, if you look at your Bibles, from verse 5 to verse 6. And as we go through this passage, I have two headings today. Number one, it's Abraham's family through faith alone. That comes from verse 6 through 9. And then verses 10 through 14, Abraham's family, the curse and the cross. So Abraham's family through faith alone. And then Abraham's family, the curse and the cross. Allow me to read verse 5 again as we begin. Galatians 3, verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. A reference to the Old Testament passage we read from last week, if you remember in Genesis 15, that Paul is arguing that there is continuity in the covenant of grace. That God counts believing God, or it's just another way to say to have faith, God counts that as righteousness. Theologian Frank Thielman, a wonderful New Testament scholar who is also actually part of this denomination, notes that this Greek word for count is a, actually an ancient term, a mathematical term that refers to taking one value as equal to another or crediting one thing as another. So Abraham was justified by faith, counted as righteousness, and look at the phrasing there in verse 6, just as. Just as those who have come after who believe in faith from hearing. It's one and the same. It's the same equation and formula. Paul is basically saying, can't you see how marvelous and wonderful this actually is? That although we're not saved by the Mosaic law as nobody actually can be saved by the law, we are saved the same way Abraham was saved. We are under the same covenant of grace, not by works of the law. He is arguing that we are all saved, Old Testament and New Testament, by the same instrument of faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. This is how we are made right with God. This is how we are declared justified before holy God. Through faith, we are credited with all, every last bit of Christ's Righteousness. It's not that we somehow magically become righteous in our own selves, but we are credited with every last bit of Christ's righteousness. His whole perfect work of obedience as part of that great exchange that I mentioned several weeks ago. Through faith, we get the whole perfect record of Christ's righteousness credited to us, or the theological term imputed to our account. You know, I really like the analogy of the spiritual bank account. It really helps me many years ago when I was trying to learn this. 
And it reminds me of my years in Chicago as a church planner for several years. Money was hard to come by as a church planter. I would have to look at my bank account frequently because I would sometimes get really, really low and sometimes even have a negative balance, which is a terrible feeling, as some of you know full well. But then a family member or a trusted supporter would deposit some money or send a check, and I would be okay for a little bit again. And imagine if I woke up one morning and opened up my bank account app on my phone, and instead of seeing $23.70, I saw an endless, infinite number credited to my account. See, that's what happens in your spiritual bank account, that before you were saved through faith in Christ, we come with empty, bankrupt, negative balances spiritually. We are spiritually bankrupt, but through faith we get credited with all the righteousness. And get this, this is really helpful, not just a loan that you pay back, not just some credited, but all. So when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our spiritual bankruptcy anymore. Oh, that's, or, or, oh, that's Robin. I mean, it's not in the negative, but it's pretty, still pretty low. He sees instead his son's perfect record instead. For you children here or watching at home, perhaps you can illustrate this yourself with your favorite piggy bank. I loved my piggy bank <laughs> growing up. How does it feel when that bank is almost empty or completely empty? But how would it feel if by no good work from yourself and if you didn't do any of your chores or if you didn't do anything to earn anything in that piggy bank, the goodness of yourself, that bank is now overflowing beyond what you're capable of counting that there is no more space anymore for your piggy bank to hold the amount given to you. Growing up, I used to watch DuckTales, I'm ashamed to admit, back when TVs had antennas, and kids, you could ask your parents what antennas were. The beginning opening sequence and the song and all the, the three uh, nephews are, are coming to visit their Uncle Duck. And he's so rich that he has this huge mansion, way taller than this building, and he's swimming in gold coins. And I thought, I don't know physically how you could do that, but it looks fun. But there's that overwhelming sense that it's not just a loan, it's not just a thousand dollars of spiritual credit, it's an infinite amount. Friends, God counts and credits your faith, get this, a pure gift of God, nothing that you could earn, he counts it as the perfect righteousness of Christ. Not because you read your Bible this week or served on missions committee or ministered to the poor or tithed regularly or mentored the youth, all great things, of course, but that doesn't credit you with anything. That doesn't add one bit to that spiritual piggy bank. Only faith in the promised one, all the way back from Abraham. Only through faith in the promised one, Jesus Christ. Now, as we go on here, Paul will build layer upon layer, as he already has, on why their false, distorted gospel 
of these Judaizers is illogical and rubbish. It's trash, actually. And why their gospel, a gospel not from man, but from God, is the only way. And one of the layers he builds off of is the Judaizers' prized possession, Abraham himself. As Phil Riken notes, the Judaizers were serious about this, that belonging to God meant being a child of Abraham. So Paul's saying, okay, with that argument, let's try to unpack that, and you'll see the true gospel. We start with him in verse 6, Abraham, and we'll end with Abraham in verse 14. But he'll be highlighted throughout the next two chapters because this is such a critical piece to seeing how the Bible, the whole Bible, fits together around the promised fulfillment of Jesus Christ. Now look at that text, verse 6 through 14. This passage includes that word faith seven more times, Abraham five times, and the word for curse another five times. Keep that in mind as we look for cues and clues in regards to themes and main points. So basically, Paul is saying, okay, if you want to argue that we need to stay in and under the law in order to be saved, and in the same heritage and lineage all the way back to Abraham, well then, who is truly part of this lineage? Verse 7 tells us, know know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Where is Paul getting this from? Well, from God's holy word. Don't you love how Scripture interprets Scripture? Scripture testifies about itself, that rule of faith. This is from God's holy word. Paul is not joining with the other apostles and trying to come up with their own scheme. The apostles are pointing to the very word itself. It goes back to Genesis 17, verse 4 through 5. Behold, my covenant is with you. He's talking to Abraham. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. God makes a covenant with Abraham. He even changes his name to denote what the promise would entail. Abraham literally means father of a multitude. And get this, father of a multitude of nations. That word for nations can be translated interchangeably as people groups. How is this biologically possible to come from one person, Abraham? God was speaking spiritually about the gospel and through faith, believing in God, trusting in God and his promises, that just as Abraham was saved through faith, so shall so many others who will come after you through faith alone. As theologians put this, Abraham is that living Old Testament prophecy of the gospel. Loved reading that. Abraham is the living Old Testament prophecy of the gospel. And hello, Judaizers. Hello, everyone else. Paul is basically saying this example of faith, apart from the law, goes all the way back to Abraham. And you guys know full well that this was before the Mosaic law was even ever given. So boom, there's there's another layer to the argument. If you want to trace all the way, everything back to the family of God, going back to Abraham, well, you guys are arguing for the law. Abraham was given this covenant blessing before the Mosaic law was in place. And he goes on, look at verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand 
to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. This comes straight from Genesis 12, verse 3, and particularly the word you. That singular reference to the seed that will come from Abraham, of course, being Christ Jesus. Through Christ, all the nations will be blessed, meaning all those who believe and believed in the promise of the long-awaited Messiah will be blessed and will be saved. Paul is adding this additional layer to the argument. The gospel is thoroughly scriptural. Although we are not saved through the law, that doesn't mean the gospel is against the Old Testament. Absolutely not. The Old Testament and even the law was pointing towards the seed of promise to fulfill everything and save. Remember the argument about Paul was like this was gospel light. His, the false teachers and opponents like this is, it's, a, it's a really crummy gospel. It's too light. It's made up by man. Paul keeps saying, what are you talking about? Scripture is testifying to this one true gospel. The holy, inspired, and breathed out word of God foresaw that the Gentiles would also be included in the gospel call. And I love that phrasing there in that verse. The scriptures preached the gospel, the good news. You Judaizers think the gospel of Christ is antithetical to the Old Testament scriptures? You're absolutely wrong. Paul is arguing it's actually talking about the same thing. And for these Judaizers, as Frank Thielman notes again, if the gospel call was for everyone to become Jewish, so to speak, the fulfillment of Abraham would actually be incomplete. Don't you see what you're trying to argue for? If you're trying to make everyone Jewish, you are, in essence, trying to cut off the promise of God to Abraham. Abraham was supposed to be a blessing for a multitude of people groups and nations, not just the Jews. Growing up, Friends, I, I used to think that the word gospel was only a New Testament invention, a New Testament thing <clears throat> or concept. And I thought there was a disconnect between the two Testaments. I thought the Old Testament growing up was just ethnic Israel, New Testament, it's all for us. But how wrong I was and perhaps how wrong I was taught at my youth group all those years. Because the gospel of God was there from before actually the creation of the world. That God had a plan of redemption even before we were created, brothers and sisters. And in regards to the Bible, we see the gospel proclaimed in all the scriptures from Genesis through Revelation. And then look at verse 9. He says, as a result then, or so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul is saying again, don't be bewitched, Galatians. You don't need to now turn to the law to stay saved or even be saved to begin with. You are a son of Abraham from the lineage of Abraham and the promise, not because of any biological bloodline connection or what Ancestry.com tells you, but because you are of the same faith. Thanks be to God. And as many have noted before, Abraham was justified through faith even before he was circumcised. Remember, that's what the Judaizers, that's like their, their one last bullet is, well, they have to be circumcised. They have to be circumcised. Abraham himself was justified before that. Of course, God gave the covenant sign of circumcision afterward. But in order to be justified and declared righteous, this was only through faith alone. This was the dagger argument 
against these Judaizers. Now to our second portion, the actual title given to today's text, Abraham's family, the curse, and the cross. So the first section was Abraham's family through faith alone. Now Abraham's family, the curse, and the cross. Paul will deftly show how the law can save or bring any confidence, actually, before God because it actually brings us under a curse. The reasoning is signaled by his use of the word in verse 10, 4. Look at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. Now this is some heavy kind of contextual work going back to the Old Testament that I want you to track along because it's really important to this whole argument. Paul is quoting here from this verse from Deuteronomy 27 verse 26 that under the law you are actually under a curse that is inescapable within your own power or strength or yourself. Basically saying, oh, you people who thought the law was the way to salvation, the law only showed our innate fallibility and our total depravity. The law shows us that we are actually cursed under it. Unless you thought you have abided by the law perfectly, is that any of you? Is that any of you, Judaizers? Have you abided by this law perfectly? Because then we can have a different conversation. And if you read through Deuteronomy 28, it's, it's, it's a lot. That's a good sobering reference for all of this in context. In this chapter, you will notice that the first 14 verses are allocated to how God will bless you if you could actually keep the whole law. That's just 1 through 14 versus the heavy amount of verses, verses 15 through 68. That's 54 total verses dedicated to the curses upon you if you didn't obey perfectly. So generally speaking, verse 1 through 14 in Deuteronomy 20, if you obey my statutes, if you obey the laws, if you do these, these good things will happen in blessing. Oh, but if you mess up, here are 54 verses of your condemnation and curse upon you. You Judaizers know the scriptures, right? And you're trying to argue that trying to obey the law is the way in. Paul is saying, that's ridiculous. You don't need a new gospel. You don't need a new ideology to tell you how ridiculous that you guys, Judaizers, you know the scriptures, right? Oh, just look at it for yourself. It's impossible to get in through obeying the law because you need perfection. As Paul will later say in Romans 3.23, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no way you can get in through the law. That's precisely why he says, now look at verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Paul, quoting, of course, of course from that well-known verse from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, I'll read this. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. God here differentiating in Habakkuk between the evil Babylonians and the, uh, versus the remnant of Judah, those who live by faith and are considered righteous. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 was actually a huge pivoting point for the reformer Martin Luther. He didn't understand this verse at first, 
But then when it dawned on him that he can't get into the good graces and salvation and good standing before a mighty, holy, almighty God based on his routine of, uh, of repentance or his routine of, of trying to externally change his life, it was liberating for him to say, and he kept repeating it, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And I'll tie this all together in a moment, but look at verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Paul adds one extra layer of impossibility to stray from faith back into law by quoting from Leviticus 18, verse 5, that there is actually a path to life and salvation through the law, and that is if you're perfect in this. Leviticus 18.5, but you have to be perfect. And Paul knows, we know, obviously nobody other than Christ himself could ever think about possibly accomplishing all the law perfectly. So basically, hope in the law is a certain dead end, and only through faith in Christ alone can help a helpless one be saved. But here comes the pivot and glorious conclusion to our passage in our last two verses, 13 through 14. And I gave you the first transaction of the great exchange, right? Our being declared, our being given in our spiritual bank account, the righteousness of Christ through faith in him alone. But what is exchanged in return? If it's a great exchange, it's not just a one-way street. What goes back to God? Well, Paul fills in that detail in these last two verses. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Oh, friends, these next two verses are the height and center of this passage. The gospel of Christ and his finished work always is and has to be the center and priority. Do you see that word redeem there? It comes from scholars' note historically. It was used to describe buying someone back out of slavery, a concept Paul will talk about more in chapter 4. But of course, with the context, we can think of Paul's words in Romans 6, that we were once slaves to sin, and having been set free from sin now, we now have become slaves to righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we have been redeemed, bought back and reconciled because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Think about Leviticus 18. Did Jesus pass the test? Yes. He was 100% perfect in his divine nature, but also in his human nature. Truly God, yet also truly man. And he perfectly obeyed every bit of the law marked out in the scriptures. Yet how and why was he cursed then? Well, the how is because cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. This coming from the reference in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. Instructions on what to do with a criminal after he's died, to display him on a tree as a sign of being cursed. But not for too long, you need to take him down soon after, or the whole land would be cursed. And although Christ was innocent and perfect, he was cursed for us on that tree, on the, cry, on the cross. So that's the how. But what about the why? The why was because he had to take our place 
in the reception of God's holy and perfect judgment and his just wrath against sinners like us, both Jew and Gentile sinners alike. We know that famous line from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him, through him, all words to say, united to him, through faith, we are credited with the righteousness of God. And that completes, brothers and sisters, that great exchange. Through faith, we get all his credited righteousness. And in return, Christ got our bankrupt, sinful demerits, our rebellion, our shame, our complete disobedience, and of course, our curse. Christ became a curse for us so that we can be redeemed. And after Christ died and was buried, the Father accepted the finished work of Christ and accepted this propitious act and vindicated the Son by raising him from the grave on that third day. For Colossians 1 says, He is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And the victory over sin and death was his and is now the perfect word over us who believe through faith. I never get tired talking about this. So that was the how and why. But now to verse 14 to talk about the result. Look at verse 14. That's why he says, so that. So that, as a result, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham. He's coming back to that initial argument using Abraham as that piece, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Thanks be to God that verse 14 is that parallel bookend to the beginning of our passage in verse 16, verse 6, that Abraham believed God and was counted him as righteousness, to now verse 14, Gentiles can also be counted as righteous through faith in the promised seed. Jesus Christ, from the promised blessing of Abraham, their prized possession, the father of a multitude of nations. And don't you see how chapter 3 is now coming all together? Paul goes back to the argument that part of the redemptive plan includes the genuine reception of the promised Holy Spirit brought to us through the instrument of faith. As we read, as we read from the Old Testament passage earlier today in, in Joel chapter 2, the promised outpouring of the Spirit is for all those who believe in Christ alone. It's, it doesn't have to be a biological lineage. It doesn't have to be, oh, you are with the people of Israel. It is through faith alone that we also get the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. And now we see how Paul's ongoing argument, his layering upon layering, is coming together. Last week, verse 1 through 5, conversion by the Spirit through because of faith and not the law. Today, verse 6 through 14, the Scriptures, as we have looked at the Old Testament and the New Testament passages, the Gospel is not man-made, but from God, and the Gospel is completely consistent with the Scriptures. This is how we can weed out all the new religious nonsense even today, all the distorted and adopted gospels or any new age spirituality that one might stumble upon. Does it pass the biblical smell test? Does scripture testify to whatever you're hearing, listening, and reading lately? Does our, does my exposition of God's word today or any other week pass the scripture test? 
Because this is Paul's testimony too, right? This is not man-made. He's not saying, hey, I have all these PhD degrees and so this is what you need to listen. I've formulated all these creative ideas about redemption. No, Paul is saying, go back to the scriptures. It speaks to the same gospel. This is consistent and a fulfillment of the promise of God all the way back to Abraham. Brothers and sisters, some final applications then. Number one is this. Embrace your justification. Oh, how I will be praying for this, for myself and for us. Don't just know more things about your justification. Embrace your justification. You could perhaps say live up to your justification. Not earn your justification, not pay back God for your justification, but embrace your justification. This righteousness of Christ that is credited to us because of faith alone in Christ alone by grace alone. Earlier I talked about this righteousness not earned or merited at all by works or by good deeds. So why do people who completely understand this justification by faith alone actually read their Bibles then? Serve the poor, serve the church, so many of you guys, officers and volunteers and lay leaders, you work tirelessly. Is it to earn your justification? You would say, hopefully, no. Then why do you do any of these things? If someone comes off the street, if someone is a coworker or a neighbor that's not a believer and says, why do you do all things? If, you, if it's not to earn any of God's grace, why do you do any of these things at all? It's because those of us who have been truly struck by the magnificence of this gospel, struck by the love of God, who redeems us and justifies us out of that wealth of grace, hopefully we could all say amen to say we respond in joy. We respond in obedience. We respond in commitment. We respond in Colossians 3 and putting on Christ and putting off the old man in the mortification of sin. We respond in pursuing his kingdom first, in loving God with all and loving neighbors as ourselves. Is that to earn anything? No. Is that to stay in? Is that to maintain justification? No. It's because it's the new direction and path that we're on, brothers and sisters. I know that probably majority of us know this. Perhaps this word of application is coming back to something that you believed in earlier but have drifted away from. And that somehow you might have thought, I've had a bad month. How could I serve the church a little bit more just to make me feel like, okay, that's why I'm justified. And to go back to this basic promise saying, no, it's actually, I can't do anything to add to this grace. That if I had a bad week or a good week, I am credited in Christ's righteousness. And so God, grant me the strength to believe. Help me in my unbelief. Help me to obey and to walk in a manner worthy of my calling in the gospel. Not to earn, not to merit, but out of sheer gratitude of this grace. This is how the gospel works. We bring nothing, only the faith that he gives us, and he gives us everything. And out of that abundance of joy, we freely give our lives to him.
You know, when people desire no obedience to Christ in response to the overwhelming overture of love from God, you could wonder if anything has transpired in this divine equation of grace to begin with. And so that's why I always go back to indicatives before imperatives, friends, not the other way around. Out of the perfect finished gospel statements of truth we find in the scriptures, we joyfully pursue obedience to the commands he instructs us from his holy word. During my youth years, I did religious things because I thought this would get me a pass. Today, I obey out of faith that God has accomplished everything already through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. Brothers and sisters, embrace your justification. Embrace being declared righteous. As one theologian wrote, quote, the transfer is not merely symbolic, but the real merit of Christ is ours, end quote. I don't need to be paranoid anymore. His record is my record before our holy God. So now I can freely live for him with that wonderful knowledge and understanding. I, we don't have to be paranoid anymore. We could just embrace this justification. Number two, we don't need to discard or hate the law. We've been talking a lot about the law, but we don't need to discard it or hate the law. Let me explain, or we'll misunderstand. Although we are not saved under the law, that doesn't mean we despise the law. The law is actually of God. The law reflects, like a mirror, the character and goodness of God. The law is useful because, like a mirror, it also shows our depravity and our need for a Savior. We simply understand that we cannot be saved under the law. I'm talking about the moral law of God. As the, as the ritualistic and ceremonial laws were all once and for all fulfilled in Christ alone, and so has the moral law, but the moral law, you could say summarized in the Ten Commandments, and you could think about the greatest commandments of Christ, loving God and loving others, we surely don't discard them. We don't become what theologians call antinomian, that literally translates to against law or against the moral law of God. That's actually a growing trend in the evangelical world these days. The distortion that grace liberates us from obedience at all to God. That's also anti-gospel. Just as the opposite of trying to earn God's favor, we call that legalism, is also anti-gospel. One scholar writes, this does not remove the obligation of the believer to obey the moral dem demands of God by in the enabling of the Holy Spirit. Yet such obedience does not merit justification. Rather, it is the evidence and fruit of justifying faith. End quote. So I want to caution us. Embrace your justification, but that doesn't give us a license to do as we please. God has his standard, his ways given to us from the scriptures to embrace and say, now I'm empowered to obey. I know that I still won't do this perfectly, but I do this not to earn salvation, but to be pleasing, to live a pleasing life to God. This is actually how the gospel works. We receive and then we obey. The obeying part is not part of the gospel, it is the reaction and response to the gospel. So please don't misunderstand, but also don't discard the law. Finally, number three, embrace being part of the family. Embrace being part of the family. Judaizers, don't you really want to be in the family? 
that's what they're saying to us, you could say, I am, through faith, just like the ancestor Abraham modeled for us that he is saved through faith. Embrace being part of God's family as we look towards the nations, as we hear testimonies about Sam earlier from Japan, who's to be baptized and proclaim publicly the faith in Christ alone, that he realizes that he has come to the saving faith apart from his works or apart from the work of the law, but through faith and grace alone. I think sometimes we can get so caught up in our own nation, in our own a people group in our own kind of social groups that we forget that the family of God extends to the nations and to the ends of the earth. And that's why we need to rejoice that this gospel is global. <laughs> it's global. It's not just for one nation. It's not just for one country or people group, but it's for all. And that's why we need to pray for our missionaries, for our own hearts, that we will be globally minded as we pray for the proclamation of the gospel. So as a summary, embrace your justification. Embrace being part of the family. Embrace the fact that you're saved apart from the law, but don't discard the moral law of God and Christ's commandments based off of a faulty view of grace. But instead, through faith, live in the path of righteousness and in his ways. And some of you might tell me, I'm a recovering legalist, I'm a recovering Pharisee. Some of you might tell me, oh, I tried to take advantage of grace and was borderline antinomian. What fixes that seesaw of misunderstanding is to get more gospel. Get more gospel. Flat out, go back to the gospel. Get more, eat more from his word. Get more gospel in your diet. Diet Doctors will always say, get more fiber in your diet. Well, I'm saying, get more gospel in your diet. For gospel reception is not just for your justification, as we saw last week. Gospel reception through faith alone is also for your sanctification, all the way to your final glorification. This was heavy stuff. From all the way from verse 1 to verse 14. And Paul will keep layering as he goes on here. Oh, that defense of the true gospel. Oh, let us not get sleepy with this. Let it be the forefront of our devotion, our time, our energy, our pursuits, what we meditate on. I was driving here on I-90, looking at the cloudy skies and the gloominess there, but saying, God, help me to think on things above. Help me to stay fixated, whatever circumstances, on the beauty of God and his word. To God be the glory alone. Let's go to prayer. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gospel. We thank you that we are sons of Abraham, not based on biological lineage, but because of the gift of faith. Thank you for saving us, these Gentiles, where the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify us by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, that in him shall the nations be blessed. And out of Abraham came the one true offspring, Jesus Christ, who through him we are saved. Oh, Heavenly Father, help us to live in confidence in the righteousness that has been credited to us. Let us live, oh God, let us live like the spiritually rich sons and daughters we actually are, all because 
of the Son. And in his name, in his mighty name we pray. Amen.